1 Corinthians. As you're turning, I don't know if you know this, but if you're an average American, you will spend over 80,000 hours of your lifetime working. Sorry to depress you right off the bat. But sometimes we need to hear numbers, and you will spend, if you're an average American, you're going to spend over 80,000 hours of your lifetime working. Do the math. I'm not very good at math, so you probably should do the math uh, with me when I say that. But do the math. If you work 40 hours per week, which a recent survey said Americans work far more than 40 hours per week, but for our purposes here, let's say you work 40 hours per week for 40 years of your life, from age 25 to 65, again, probably far too low of a number for many of us. But if you spend 40 hours per week times 40 years, that is more than 80,000 hours of your life that you will spend working in a paid capacity. I'm not talking about the unpaid capacity where you're volunteering at this, you're volunteering at that. You're running your daughter's volleyball team. I'm not talking about any of those things. 80,000 hours of your lifetime will be spent working. And because of technology, where they once thought that technology would cut our work week down to 15 hours per week. Did you know that? I'm not kidding about that. Um, There was an economist by the name of John Maynard Keyes. He was a well-respected economist. In the 1930s, 1930, he wrote a piece in the New York Times. The title of the article was Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And he predicted a 15-hour work week in the 21st century, which would create a five-day weekend. (laughs) How's that going for you? (laughs) Listen to what he says. Here's what he says. He says, for the first time, this was 1930, For the first time since his creation, man will be faced with his real permanent problem, how to occupy leisure. Is that the real problem you're facing today, how to occupy leisure? By the way, that just teaches us not to put too much stock in what the experts of the world are saying about the future. You know what I'm saying? We sometimes read stuff about the so-called experts say about the future, and then you look back on it 50 years later, and you're like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about at all. But we put so much stock in it. The reason they thought this, though, the reason he thought this, was that that technology would save so much time, um, was because it, it was the new fad. But what technology has done is because we can work anywhere, we work every where? Have you noticed that? Your car has become a mobile workstation. Has it not? And, and driving, which was what, once a form of leisure for many people, it was, it was the time where you can have a conversation with your spouse and the muscles of your brain could unclench. Just for a moment, it has, it's become a workstation. I make, I hate saying this, but I wait until I'm in my car driving to make my hardest phone calls of the day. And the reason is because I know that nobody can hear me. And so I, I, my car has become my workstation. And I bet you, for many of you, it's the same thing for you. You're probably driving down the road, eating a hamburger, texting somebody, responding to an email, all at the same time. Um, it's become a mobile workstation. So because of technology, we're always working. In fact, 
Americans work more hours than similarly rich countries. We work way more hours. There's a guy by the name of Samuel P. Harrington. In his book, Who, Who Are We? The Challenges to America's National Identity, he writes this. He says, Americans work longer hours, have shorter vacations, get less in unemployment, disability, and retirement benefits, and retire later than people in comparably rich societies. Now, you take all of this into consideration, 80,000 hours of your life, the nonstop pressures of work, that we work longer than just about every other country, and, and all of that reality, and yet the topic of work is hardly ever addressed from a pulpit. Have you noticed that? That's a mistake. That's a mistake. Because the Bible has a much, it's a huge, work is a huge component of our lives. Nobody can deny that. Especially in American. You cannot deny it. Statistically, Americans work just longer than everybody else. Even, even societies that are just as rich as us, uh, we work longer than they do. So we can't deny that fact. And given that, we ought to spend time thinking about it. We ought to spend time talking about it. And the Bible has a much richer, much more robust, a much more honest explanation for the complexities and the joys of work than anything our culture provides. And one of the places this comes out clearly is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I know you're in 1 Corinthians already. Skip down to chapter 7. And as you're looking at chapter 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 17. But you've got to remember, we're picking up Paul's train of thought. As we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 17, we're picking up Paul's train of thought. And he has been... He's been dealing with the topic of marriage, and he's been telling the young, uh, the young Christians in Corinth that they're to remain in the state that they are, that they're, that they're in. When they got saved, they're to remain in the state that they're in. He says, if you're a believer, and you're married to an unbeliever, and they consent to live with you, then you're to remain in that marriage. And you're to do the very best that you can possibly do to represent the Lord there. Um, look at verse 12. I'll just have you look at it real quick. Paul says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And what he's saying is we don't have direct reference of this from the Lord. He, he says, this is what I say, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So you had these young believers at the church in Corinth who thought, well, maybe, now that I'm a Christian, maybe it would be more God-honoring if I divorced my unbelieving spouse and married another Christian. And Paul says, no, that's, that's not the case. Maybe they thought it would be more God-honoring. Um, it, it would improve their status in the church if they weren't married to an unbeliever, but they were married to a believer. Um, because remember, the, the Corinthians, they were social climbers. Everybody, everybody in Corinth, nobody was from Corinth. Everybody came to Corinth because it was a place where you can make your money and climb in social status. 
And so maybe they were thinking, if I divorce my spouse, who's an unbeliever, marry another spouse who is a believer, maybe that'll improve my status within the church. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Remain there. Stay in the state that you're in when you got saved and seek to honor the Lord there. Now, if your unbelieving spouse leaves the marriage, then you're freed. You're not enslaved. You're freed from the marriage. But as long as they're willing and they consent to live with you, then remain, remain in the marriage and trust that the Lord has purposes for you in the marriage. Look at, look at verse 16. He says, how do you know, wife, whether you, by representing the Lord in the marriage, by representing the Lord to the best of your ability, how do you know if the Lord won't use your witness and save your husband? And how do you know, husband, if you, by staying in the marriage to an unbeliever and representing the Lord's love and his wisdom and his grace in his marriage, how do you know that you won't save your wife? So Paul's saying, no, stay in the marriage, stay in it, remain in that state. Stay there and represent the Lord to the best of your ability, trusting that the Lord can use it right there in your marriage. So his principle is stay right where you're at when the Lord has called you. Now, what's going to happen in verses 17 through 24 is he's going to take that thought, that principle, stay the thought of remaining in the state that you're in when the Lord's called you, and he's going to expand it to their whole life. Not just their married life, not just their relationship status, but to their entire life. And he's going to say, whatever social status you're in, when the Lord's called you, stay there. Stay in that status. Um, and in their day, much like ours, our status, a lot of times, is defined by, within, the, within our culture, it's defined by our marriage and our work. Uh, either if you're married or not, uh, that's a status, that's a social status, or what kind of work you do. So much like their culture, our culture does the same thing. And what Paul's are, we already know what Paul said about marriage, uh, their marital status. They're to remain in it. Now we'll see what he has to say regarding their work life. And what he says here, now listen, what he says here is critically important for us to grasp. Because if you don't have an understanding about what the Bible says about your work life, your Sunday life will never be connected to your Monday life. You understand that? If you don't understand what the Bible says about your work life, your Sunday experience will never match your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday experience. Your life will be bifurcated. What, what was once whole will, will split and it'll never become whole. Meaning you'll have your spiritual life over here on Sunday but you'll have your secular life over here the rest of the week. And that's not the biblical picture because all of life is to come under the gospel. All of our life is, is really spiritual. And the gospel, what it does is it actually gives you a better narrative for work than anything our culture says. And if you take seriously what Paul will say here, it'll give you a new perspective on your work It'll give you a new purpose for your work, and it'll give you a new power in your work. And so it's critically important. And so let's get into the text. Beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, let's see what Paul says. We're picking up the, his train of thought. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. Now, if you're a note taker, 
or someone who underlines in their Bible, underline the words assigned and called. And we'll come back to it in a little bit. He says, so only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. It's not just for the you Corinthians, it's for everybody. This is a universal principle. Was anyone at the time of his call, uh, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Now, remember, uh, circumcision, it was the sign of the covenant, right? Sign of the covenant, we, we saw this in Genesis, way back in Genesis chapter 15. It was, an, circumcision was an identity marker. It marked you as, literally, mark, right? It marked you as a member of the covenant community, the covenant community of Israel. That you, you were not a pagan, you were a Yahweh worshiper. It was a sign that you belonged to the covenant community. And Paul says, look again, look at what he says. He says, um, let, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. And by the way, there was a procedure that you could do if you got circumcised and you wanted to get uncircumcised. They actually had a tool that you could have this done. I don't know how persuasive of a speaker you got to be to convince somebody to get uncircumcised, but it actually was a thing. Uh, and some Christians did it after they got saved. Um, they thought, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove the marks of circumcision here. Whatever. You, hey, each, pick your poison, I guess. Um, he, but Paul says, let him not seek to remove the mark of, of circumcision. Now look at what he says. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Well, if those don't count, what does? Keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So Paul says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. And that would have shocked anybody who was Jewish. But he says, what he's saying is it has no bearing. Circumcision has no bearing on your standing before God. And therefore, what he's saying is you don't need to change your status before God to make yourself more pleasing to him. He's saying the social distinctions are irrelevant. What matters is, he says, is if you're living out the words and the ways of Christ. Which is exactly, by the way, um, what Paul says all the way through the book of Galatians. All the way through the book of Galatians. And hopefully, in a, I hope to get into, into the book of Galatians in the next couple of years. Um, because that is what he says all the way through. None of the religious stuff matters. What matters, he says, actually in Galatians chapter 5, he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision, neither circumcision nor un uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So what he says is, remain in the state in which the Lord has called you. And then he gives a second application. Look at, look at verse 21, second, second illustration of the principle in, in verse 21. He says, were you a bondservant? Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. So another indicator of your social status was whether you were a slave or a freed person. And of course, that was a huge social status marker. Now, um, when you think of slavery, you, we in America, we automatically import America's shameful history of slavery. But that wasn't necessarily the case in Paul's day. 
pretty much uh, a great percentage of people were slaves. And for the most part, they were treated much better than slavery in America. Anthony Thistleton, in his great commentary on 1 Corinthians, he writes this. He says, some literate slaves might hold uh, responsible positions of household management, business accounting, or other kinds of positions of influence. So it was a better state than what was done in America, and yet you were still a slave. And that was a defining status within that culture. But look at what Paul says. He says, uh, verse 21, were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. It has no bearing on your standing before God is what he's saying. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. What he's saying is, don't let this, don't let your status as a slave be the defining reality of your life anymore. Because your relationship with Christ is the defining reality, reality of your life. But if you can get your freedom, go, go and avail yourself of the opportunity. Verse 20, 22, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. He's actually free in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let him, let, uh, whatever condition he was called, there let him remain with God. So Paul says, whatever position you were in, whatever state we found ourselves in when the Lord called you to saving faith, you should function faithfully there. Now, we already saw what that means for our married life. But what does that look like in the other huge facet of our life, which is work. Because what Paul says here will revolutionize your work life if you let it. He gives a new perspective on work, he gives a new purpose for our work, and he gives us a new power within the work. So let's look at each one. First, new, first the new perspective of work. Look at verse 17 again. I had you underline the words assigned. Did you see that? Assigned and called. Paul says each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Now, what Paul does here is interesting because he uses two words, two religiously packed words to describe everyday, ordinary work. In other places, you think about the word called in the Bible, and more often than not, when the word called is used in the scriptures, it refers to God's call on your life, his summons to salvation. That's what almost always, when you see the word call, more often than not, what it's saying is you have been called into a saving relationship with Christ. And then assigning, more often than not, he assigns spiritual gifts for the building up of the Christian community. Now here, however, notice Paul uses these words to say that every Christian should remain in the work that God has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Now, what does that mean about our work? What does that mean about our life, and what does it mean about our work life? What it means is this. Paul says our work isn't simply a career which we choose, but a calling that the Lord gives. And that makes all the difference in the world on how you see your work. This is the idea 
of the idea that work is something that God calls you into, this is the idea of vocation. The word vocation, it comes from the Latin word vocare, and it means to call. And it carries with it the idea that you're summoned into, uh, you're summoned by God to perform a particular task or to perform a particular function in life. And we have to, it's important to recapture this biblical understanding of, of vocation. And the reason it's important is because it will provide a ballast to the work that you do. It'll provide stability in the work that you do. Here's what I mean. If you see your work, now think about it, think it through with me. Uh, if you see your work as something you chose, you chose it, straight up, straight down, I chose it. And by the way, almost from the time that you enter into high school, you start taking aptitude tests. You tell, the, you tell your uh, counselor, well, here's what I want to do. And they will sometimes in some high schools uh, put you in a certain school to pursue that thing. And on college entrance forms now, a great many of them, you have to declare your major on your entrance form. And so you're set upon a, a, an existence, right? And what happens slowly but surely is you start thinking that your career is something that you alone choose. And that, that drifts into our thinking, and we absorb it. It's just, just so much so. But here's what I mean. If you see work as something you chose, then when you're in a season of satisfaction and, and tremendous fruitfulness in your work, you know what you'll do? You'll tend to grow prideful and arrogant, thinking it's all the result of your choice. And you had such good wisdom when I was 14 to pick the right career. I put it on the college entrance. I knew all along that this was what I was going to do. You'll tend to grow really, really prideful. If, if you think your work is simply something you chose, when you're in a great season and everything's going well, and people are looking at you saying, hey, you're really doing a great job. You'll think, of course I am. This is the career that I chose. I'm so wise. However, flip it around. If you're in a season where their work sucks. Can I say that? Anybody have a week where the work was not so great? Where the work was really, really hard and there was no satisfaction? There was no fruitfulness? There was just toil and pain and heartache and late nights and missing your kids' birthday parties? and bills being unpaid, if you're in that situation of work and it was your choice, you know what you'll tend to do? You'll tend to grow despondent. Why? Because it was all your choice and you made the wrong choice. You see, if you become prideful, if, you, if, you, if you're in a season of fruitfulness, you'll, become, you'll tend to grow prideful and it'll go to your head. But if you're in a season of fruitlessness and it's your choice, you'll grow despondent and it'll go to your heart. And it'll be fatal. It'll crush you if it's simply your choice. Does that make sense? Now, if you begin to see work not as something we choose, but as something the Lord calls us into, then, then when things are really d difficult, we can work faithfully, knowing that the Lord's assigned us here for a purpose. 
And when things are going really, really well in your work, if it's the Lord's calling, and you know it's not simply your choice, but it's actually the Lord's calling, you'll actually tend to grow grateful, thinking this is not the result of my choice. It's the, simply the Lord's blessing on the work of my hands. Psalm 90. And you'll, you'll actually tend to grow grateful. Does, that, does all of this make sense? Okay, good. Sometimes I can't, I can't tell. I look at, at you guys and I have no idea what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, hurry up. Um, but this, this, is what, this is why it's so important to get the right perspective on work, a new perspective on work. The biblical perspective, it provides a ballast to your work. It provides stability in your work. So whether you're in a good season or a bad season, you can say, the Lord has called me to this. And if it's going well, I'll be grateful. If it's not going well, I can say, okay, well, the Lord still called me here and I'm going to work faithfully trusting him. But here's the second thing it does. It keeps your thinking straight. It keeps your thinking straight. Here's what I mean. In uh, Derek Thompson in 2019, he's a a writer for the Atlantic Magazine, Atlantic Journal. He wrote a piece entitled, The Religion of Workism is Making Americans Miserable. Now listen to what he says, because this is absolutely true. Listen to what he says. He says, the decline of traditional faith in America, and we all know that, traditional faith in America is declining. The uh, percentage of nuns, people who affiliate with, with no, religious, uh, no religions, that's growing. So he says, the decline of traditional faith in America has c- coincided with, the, with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something. And workism, and workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but it's also the centerpiece of one's identity and their self-worth. Now, think about what he's saying. Because for thousands of years, in almost every culture, you found your meaning and purpose in life in your relationship to your God and in your role within your family. Mother, father, brother, sister, son, or daughter. And work, work didn't carry with it this idea that it was where you went to go find meaning. Work was simply a means to an end, to find a way to provide for yourself and your family, to find a way to contribute to society. But we're the first culture, we're the first culture in history that says you define yourself by deciding what you want to be and then attaining it. And then and only then, then and only then, will you have significance and meaning. And then and only then, will your life be validated. Now, do you see what pressure that puts on work? That puts a pressure on work that work wasn't meant meant to carry. It puts a pressure on your life that you weren't meant to carry. And by the way, it causes great anxiety to your kids when you're discussing future careers with them. If they soak this up, there's a reason why in in all elite colleges right now, kids are riddled with anxiety. It's because of this. 
they have left God behind and academic achievement and work is their new God. And therefore, it riddles them with anxiety. And you see what the gospel actually, now listen, listen, listen to what the gospel actually does. It frees us from the relentless, uh, the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves. The gospel actually frees you from all of this. It frees you from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves, to validate your existence, and to secure your identity from work. Why? Because in Christ, <laughs> you've already been given an identity. And because you're in Christ, you're secure in his love forever. So there's nothing to prove. And by the way, there's nothing to lose. You see, the gospel is such a better message than anything our world offers. It frees you from all the pressure and says, you're completely validated in Christ. The only opinion that really matters in the entire universe looks upon you with love. It's a way better message than anything our world offers. So you gotta get back, we gotta get back. If you live within the gospel, if you see your work within the gospel, work doesn't become an idol. And it doesn't become the centerpiece of your identity. It keeps your thinking straight because the pressure is always there to turn your work into an idol, to turn your work into the place where you find your identity, you find your purpose, you find your meaning. And if it doesn't go well, well, then you're despondent. Um, and by the way, pastors are not immune to this. I'll just tell you that straight up. Oftentimes on Sunday mornings, when worship is happening, you guys are singing and you sound great. I'm in the front row praying, Lord, this is what I always pray on Sunday mornings. Um, I tell the Lord, I hope it's okay that I tell him. Um, I say, Lord, I do not want to find my identity in this. My identity does not consist if whether the sermon goes well or if it goes poorly. doesn't matter. I mean, I'd like it to go well. I'd like to be able to go home and ask my wife, hey, how'd the sermon go? And hear something other than, fine. Um, I'd love that. <laughs> I never get it, but... Uh, but I tell myself that all the time. Your identity does not rest in the work that you do. That doesn't, that doesn't define who you are. And, and see, when we make it about that, it, it paralyzes us. And so Paul, what he does is he gives us a new perspective on work. That it's not something we, it's not something, simply something we choose, although we do choose it. We choose it after we're called into it. And that provides a ballast in our work and it helps us keep our thinking straight. Here's the second thing. It gives us a new purpose for work. So a new perspective, but then it gives us a new purpose for work. Because in verse 23, Paul reminds us that we were bought with a price. And we belong now lock, stock, and barrel to the Lord. Lock, stock, and barrel. All of our life belongs to the Lord. It's the same thing he said in uh, chapter 6, verse 20. He says, you're not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So honor the Lord with your body. So first and foremost... We're called by the Lord to honor him right where he's planted us. And that gives our work, whatever your work is, that gives your work tremendous meaning and, and purpose. We're to represent him to the best of our abilities, right where we're at. And by the way, um, a lot of people think, well, well, I don't get, well, let me say it like this. You have in your work way more evangelistic opportunities every single day than I do in mine. Because you rub shoulders every single day with people who are non-Christians. Most of the appointments in my week are with Christians. Um, or with people who are in unbelievable pain and 
they're reaching out for anything at that point. So you have way more evangelistic opportunities than I do each and every week, and that's a wonderful thing. So Paul, he gives us a new purpose for work, that our work is to serve the Lord in whatever work that he's called us to. And you know what that does? That, that gives all forms of work, all forms, unless it's exploitive in nature, all forms of work have dignity, which means blue-collar jobs are just as honorable and God-pleasing as white-collar jobs. It also means the so-called secular and sacred divide uh, secular jobs are just as honorable and God-honoring as sacred jobs. In fact, that's a, that's a false dichotomy because it's all sacred work, because it's all supposed to be done for the glory of the Lord. It's all an act of, of worship offered to the Lord. John Calvin, I'm running out of time. Calvin wrote, no task will be seen as so sordid and base provided you obey your calling in it, that it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. So Paul gives us a new purpose for work, to honor the Lord to the best of our abilities, right where he's planted you, whatever work that is, which gives a newfound dignity to all forms of work. And one of the chief ways, by the way, that we honor the Lord is by loving and serving our neighbor through the work that you're called to do. Whatever the work is, you're to honor, and, you're to honor the Lord by loving and serving your neighbor through your work. If God's purpose is to serve our neighbor, and it is, then the best way to serve God is by doing your work to the best of your ability. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, in her book, Creed or Chaos, listen to what she says. It's so right on. She said, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be a drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours, and then come to church on Sundays and put some money in the, in the basket. This is true, is it not? What the, now listen to what she says. What the, what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. That is so true. That's the ministry of competency. Uh, if your job is to fly a plane, you want, what you want out of your pilot is to land the plane. Is that not true? You see, to see our work as spiritual, it compels us to execute it with great competency. No longer can work be seen simply as a means to earning a living. No longer can it be seen simply as uh, simply a, a way to fund a retirement. But then you got to ask yourself, well, what could possibly motivate anybody to see it this way? To really see work as service to the human community and not simply as a means to human survival or not simply as a way to, to fund a certain lifestyle? Because, let, I mean, honestly, this is counterintuitive to us, is it not? It is counterintuitive to us to see work as something as spiritual. Well, what could possibly motivate somebody to see it that way, to see it as a way of serving our, our, our fellow man? Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus, the ultimate example and model of service. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, you don't need to turn there. When speaking of the extent of Christ's service to us, he writes, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. 
Being found in human form, he humbled himself by, be, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which means when your heart and your mind grasps the depth and the extent of Christ's service to you, what it will do is it'll actually motivate you to serve others in a similar manner. It'll, it'll enable you and it'll empower you to serve others in the work that the Lord's called you to and assigned for you to do on his behalf. You see, your work then is a gospel issue. It's not simply a way to make money. It's actually a gospel issue. Only when you realize that Christ Jesus entered his own creation, not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom, then and only then, will you begin to see work not as a means of survival or as a way to fund retirement, but as a way, a real way of exhibiting Christ-like service and Christ-like love on behalf of others in the name of Christ. And you know what that does? That gives you a newfound freedom to pursue work that's in line with your gifts, abilities, history, and passions. When you say that all of work is is dignified, we we already said that, and all of it can be used by the Lord to be of service to others, what that does, that gives you a newfound freedom to pursue any type of work that's in line with your gifts and passions. I was reading a business journal a while back of a man who went to law school. And he passed the bar, and he started working for Merrill Lynch as a hedge fund manager. And he pursued the career because he knew it would make him really, really, it would make him a lot of money, and it would make his parents really, really happy. That was the whole reason he did it. He goes, I knew I was going to become, I was going to become, it was lucrative, and I was going to make my parents proud. But the whole time, he was miserable doing the work. Because what he wanted to be and what he was called to be was an elementary school teacher. And he says in the article, he says in the article, he's now living his dream. He he quit being a hedge fund manager, went and got a job as an elementary school teacher. He says, I'm now living my dream. He's fully alive because he's doing the work that's in line with his gifts and passions. So this, think about this new understanding of work, it gives you a new purpose to honor the Lord, by loving and serving your neighbors in all sorts of ways, it gives you a newfound freedom to pursue work that's actually in line with your gifts, your uh, abilities, your history, and your passions. And you know what else it does? Let me give you one more thing. And this is super important if you have young children. It gives you, it gives you a perspective to help your kids discern God's call on their life. Let me ask you, parent, is there anything more important that you do than help your kids figure out what their future is? We do it all the time. We spend a lot of time, a lot of time these last couple of weeks talking about this because everything in our culture has created an obsession with educational achievement. And I'm all for education, believe me. But what this, what this does for you is it gives you a perspective as a parent to help your kids discern their gifts, their abilities, 
their history and their passions and to consider where the Lord might actually use them. And, and again, that gives your kids a tremendous gift. When kids have non-anxious parents who are able to say, you know, I don't, I don't, your gifts are different than my gifts. You don't have to do what I do. You don't even have to do even what I think I want you to do. Because there will come a point where you're going to make decisions for your own life. I'm here to support them. That is a tremendous gift for a kid. A parent who can resist all the cultural pressure to pursue a certain track and just say, honey, which is in the case of what I say to Mike, they're girls. I don't know what you say to guys. Uh, say, honey, you know, we can figure out, we can discern how the Lord has wired you and he's gifted you and you can pursue that path. That's a tremendous gift. So what have we seen here? Well, Paul gives us a new perspective on work. Your work isn't simply something you choose, but it's something the Lord actually calls you into. And that provides a ballast for your work and it helps you think straight regarding your work. Second, you give, he gives you a new purpose for work, that it's to honor the Lord. How? Well, by serving your fellow man, which means all forms of work have dignity and we're free to pursue work that's in line with our gifts, passions, history, and, and abilities. And then lastly, he gives us a new power for work. A new power for work. Because implied all the way throughout Paul's argument and actually stated in verse 19 of chapter 6 is that individually we're temples of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that Christ's Spirit dwells within us. And Christ's Spirit actually empowers us. And you know what that does? That gives you a moral compass so that the work doesn't corrupt you. Because in your work and in my work, there's all sorts of pressures. Is there not? All sorts of pressures and all sorts of demands to cut corners, to shade the truth, or to flat out lie. And it's right there that the real discipleship to Christ's character and his personhood is developed. Right there. See, in, in work, we think, well, work is just work. No, no, no. It's right there that character, Christ's character Commitment to his character and his person has developed right there in the pressure-packed situation. And it may end up costing you your job. It may end up costing you a contract. But by working with integrity and skill, what it won't do is end up corrupting your soul. So the Spirit provides a moral compass so that the work doesn't corrupt you. But secondly, it gives you soul rest so the work doesn't consume you. Because work by its nature will try to consume you in our culture. The only way you'll ever be able to not have work consume you in our culture, the culture that works more than every other culture, the, the culture that work is a way to justify yourself, work is a way to prove yourself, to validate yourself, the only way you won't let work consume you is if you're able to say, Christ's work on my behalf in shedding his blood forgiving my soul is all the validation I need. And therefore, I don't need to prove myself. Therefore, when it's time to turn off work, I'm going to turn off work. When it's time to go home and be with my family, I'm going to turn off my phone and be with my family. I don't need to validate myself. I don't need to validate my experience. Jesus' love for me does. Now look at what the Spirit gives you. It gives you the inner resources you need in our culture so that the work doesn't consume you. Now look at this. 
We've, we've just scratched the surface of work. I could keep going for another couple of hours, but I can tell that you're ready to go. Look at what this, look at what Paul and look what the Bible gives you. It gives you a deeper, more robust vision of work than anything our culture offers you. It, it deals with the complexity of work head on and it gives you much better resources. When you're called to faith, you're not called to a new occupation. Your old occupation is given new significance. And the gospel, it gives you the inner resources to see your work as vitally important and yet not make it your identity because your identity is found in Christ. That's a way better, it's a way better perspective. So let me close here. Let me close three pieces of pastoral advice and I'll move quickly here. I have more to say, but I'm running out of time. So let me just pick three. Here's the first one. Um, Trust the Lord has you where he wants you in this season of your life. Are you frustrated in your work right now? No show of hands. (laughs) Uh, Seriously, if you're frustrated in your work, um, trust that the Lord has you where he wants you in this season of your life. Years ago, one of my brother-in-law called me. I have two brother-in-laws, the two best dudes in the world. One of them called me. He says, hey, I'm working at this job, and I hate it. And I said, oh, why? He says, because nobody's Christians, and it gets pretty rough. And I said, oh, man, this is awesome. You are exactly where you're supposed to be. Stay right there. And he went, what? I said, no, you're called there. Your history shows it. Your education shows it. You're called there. Stay there and represent the Lord to the best of your ability. That's where the, the Lord has called you for this season of your life to represent him. Now, that doesn't mean for him and it doesn't mean for you that you can't ever pursue other opportunities. And Paul wasn't down on upward mobility because you notice in the text, he says, uh, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So Paul's not down on upward mobility. He's not down on that at all. But more often than not, more often than not, The Lord has you where he wants you for this season of your life to represent his love and his grace to others. And oh, by the way, if he wants you to move, he'll move you and he'll make it really, really, really clear. Um, And if it's not clear, by the way, if it's not clear, how do you discern it? You stay in community with other Christians because we're not smart enough to figure out these decisions all by ourselves. It's true. We can, you know why? Because our emotions get tied up in it. Because work, even when we try not to make it our identity, it slips in there. And so you got to get good Christian community input when you're making big life decisions. So trust that the Lord has you where he wants you for this season of your life. Here's the second thing. Take inventory of your gifts, abilities, passions, and consider in what ways, given my gifts, abilities, passion, and history, in what ways... Am I able to honor the Lord by serving my fellow man? And again, we're not just talking about paid work, right? We're not just talking about paid work because a lot of good work happens that's through volunteerism. So consider your gifts, your abilities, your history, and your passion, and leverage those for God's purposes. Leverage them for God's purposes. Whether that's in a paid position or in a volunteer position. But take inventory. Take inventory of your gifts, your abilities, your history, and your passions, and consider the ways in which you're able to honor the Lord by serving human need. Right? Because ultimately, it's about human need. It's about meeting the needs of our neighbors. Here's the third one. 
Lastly, find your identity not in your work, but in the work that Christ has done for you. In the, how will I be able to set down my, my work? Only if you know that Christ has set down his work for you. His work in bearing your sin, in giving you new life through re repentant faith. Again, that's the most validating experience of your life, and it frees you to simply see your work as a good thing, but not an ultimate thing. Which means you can pick it up when it's time to work, and you can work really, really hard to the best of your abilities, and you can set it down when it's time to rest from work. Because there's nothing to prove and there's nothing to lose in Christ. Amen? Why don't you stand, we'll pray, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this text. It's a, we just, just scratched the surface of what the Bible says about our work. But we, just by scratching the surface, we can see the purpose and the meaning of the work that you've called us to. And we pray, Lord, that we would see it as such, that we would see it as a calling that you've called us into to serve you and to serve our fellow man and to the best of our abilities, that we would do it unto you, that it would be pleasing to you in the times that we screw it up, and no doubt we screw it up from time to time that we would move forward in your grace and your truth and in your love, knowing that we have nothing to prove in Christ, that you have already given us everything we need in the moment to represent you fully. And so we thank you, Lord. And uh, we do pray for tomorrow morning that we would see when we go back into work, that we would see and treat our coworkers, the people that we rub shoulders with on a day-to-day -day basis, as the reason that we're there and that we would serve them to the best of our ability. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.